I get the pleasure of speaking on the Trinity today. Uh, I'm seriously out of my depth, but to be honest, so are all of you, and so is the rest of the world. The Trinity has fascinated me since I was a kid, and maybe it's been a bit of a fascination for you too. How does it work? How can one be three? How can three be one? And unfortunately, this sermon won't really give you a solid answer to those questions, but we'll make a little progress. It wouldn't be an exaggeration to say that if we preached a hundred sermons on the Trinity, we'd only be scratching the surface. You might have heard that the word Trinity uh, doesn't appear in the Bible, and that's actually true. Nowhere in the Bible does it say God is Trinity. The idea of Trinity is our human effort to piece together from bits and pieces in the Bible the nature of God. So take a minute and just look around you. Literally look around. What do you see? I know it's a vague question, but give me something. What do you see? People? Yeah, cool. What else? Bricks. Bricks? Oh, also, I didn't think anyone would say bricks. Yeah, right, bricks. Yep. Chairs. Drum kit. They're always there, right? They were there before I asked you if they were there. Uh, They didn't kind of just magically appear. But in some way, you didn't really see them before I asked you to look. It took you a second to actually look and see what was there. And there's still other things that you don't see now, right? Like the glass on the window, you probably didn't see that until I pointed it out. The new projectors, you might not have seen those. But humans are categorisation machines, right? You didn't see them because at some point you've seen a chair before. You've seen a million chairs and you categorise them as chairs. Now when you walk into the church, you don't actually see chairs. You just sit on a chair. There was a developmental psychology study done on four-month-old babies where they showed them pictures of kittens. The first picture they showed them, the baby would stare at the kitten for ages and just like look at it, look at its position, look at its size, whatever. And then they showed a picture of a different kitten in a different position. And they looked at the second one not so long. And then after about five or six, they were completely bored by looking at the kittens. So it's innate to us. A four-month-old who can't control where they pee can build a brand new category in just five or six pictures. It's what lets us make our way through the world. So when you came in, you just sat on the chair. You didn't inspect the chair. You didn't think, oh, will this support my weight? You didn't think, oh, is this actually a chair? You barely noticed that you just sat on it. That's because you categorised it. And you reinforced it every time you saw a chair. It's got legs. It's got a curved part for your bum. That's a chair. Sit on it. I was right. Again, that was a chair. Your categories for chairs work really well. But the categories that get us through everyday life don't work with God. We can't say he's a chair. We can't say he's an animal. We can't say he's a car. So what do we do with him? We can't categorise him. There is no category for him because there's only one of him. He breaks all the categories that we have. And this is a blessing and a curse. It's a curse because we live by categorising. We wouldn't make it very far in life if we had to individually figure out what everything is. Is that a road? Oh, I can walk on it. Is that a car? No, I shouldn't walk in front of it. But when it comes to God, we can't do it. It's a curse. But it's a blessing because it means that every time we look at God, we have to look deeply at him, like it's the first time we've looked at him. When we look at a chair, we look straight past it. But when we look at God, we have to inspect him. We have to ponder and think deeply. And that's what we're going to do today. 
since God's notoriously hard to categorize, we're going to look at three things that God is not as a tricky way of trying to categorize him. The first one, the first non-category, is God is not like us. So have a think about how you observed this room just a minute ago. How did you experience it? You used your eyes to see. You might have noticed the touch on your body. Maybe you were tasting your cup of tea, something like that. And your brain took all this input and it processed it and it made sense out of it. And that's how you experience the world. You're locked into the world. You can only experience the world as far as you're locked into your body. So try as you might, you can't experience the world without your body. If you stick your hand out as far as you can and try and feel what's just one centimetre past your hand, you can't. You can only feel what your hand touches. You can't feel what's beyond your hand. Try and see what the world looks like from a metre behind you. You can't. You can only see what the world looks like from right here. If you think about it, we're very restrained. But God is not like us. This is what it says in John 4.24. So Gospel of John, chapter 4 verses 21 to 24. It tells us there that God is spirit. In its context, it's talking about the type of worship that is pleasing to God. And the type of worship that's pleasing to God is spiritual worship because God is spirit. It doesn't explain what spirit is, maybe because it can't. It's not spiritual like our modern culture uses spiritual, like ethereal things or things to do with religion or things to do with the soul. It probably involves that, but that's a bit of a narrow definition. In the Gospel of John, it's a bit broader. Spirit is normally used in contrast to flesh. So flesh being the human experience of things. The body as we know it, the limits that we have. And spirit is everything outside of that. When it says, you will worship neither on this mountain nor at Jerusalem, it's saying, you walk to this mountain or to that city with your feet, you kneel down with your knees... And that's how you worship flesh. But God is spirit. God is totally different than us. He breaks open categories of the the flesh so that we can't just worship him in flesh, but we have to also worship him in spirit. And what does that mean? What does it mean that God is spirit? We can't really say for sure. But it probably means that he's not limited to experiencing things like we experience it. Figuratively, he can see a metre behind from where he's standing. Figuratively, he can touch a centimetre beyond where his hand reaches. He's not restrained like us. The second non-category is God is not alone. The phrase is a bit weird, but this is probably where the mystery of the Trinity starts. Some people think that God created the universe because he was lonely. He was on his own and he had no one to love, so he created this world so he could love us. But that's not true. There are hints of that not being true all throughout the Bible. In Genesis 1, we have God creating the world. In the beginning, God created the world. And in Genesis 1, 2, it says also that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So before anything was formed and given life, God was already not alone. He was not lonely. We don't really get the picture of how, but it seems that God and the Spirit of God were separate. We are not here and our spirit over there. We're here and so our spirit is here. But that's not how it is with God. It seems like God can be here and his spirit can be there. They're distinct persons. And when we look at the New Testament in John 1, 1 to 3, 
we figure out that Jesus, the word of God, was also there. And later on in John chapters 14 to 16, there's lots of little hints about the Trinity there. But specifically, we can learn two really important things. John chapter 14 talks about how Jesus will be leaving this place, but in his stead, the spirit will come. So the first important thing that we learn from that is Jesus, who is the word, is not the spirit of God. So from the beginning of time, there were three. There was God, the spirit of God, and the word of God. It also tells us that the spirit acts a bit like the word, that is Jesus, in that it comforts or advocates for the people of God. So the second thing that we know is that the spirit is a person like Jesus is a person. And he cares like Jesus cares. So it's not a force or an energy that kind of just empowers things. It might be forceful or energetic, but it's actually a person and it's personal. So from before the world began, there were three persons, the Father, the Word, and the Spirit. So God is not alone and he's never been lonely. The third non-category is that he is not three gods. God is God, Jesus is God, and the Spirit is God, but God is not three gods. The Shema is a set of biblical texts that traditional Jews will recite every day. And the first line of it is the most important line of it, Deuteronomy 6.4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There are no other gods except for God. Yahweh, or the Lord, is the only God. It was the distinctive belief of Israel. So while the rest of the ancient Near Eastern world, maybe even the whole world, believed that there was a pantheon of gods who controlled different aspects of the universe, ancient Jews believed there was only one God, God Almighty, who created and ruled everything. And the one God was their God. So the Shema, especially the first line, was the centerpiece of their prayer life. They would recite it every morning and night without fail. There's only one God. And it's just as important to Christians as it is to Jews. So in Mark 12, verses 29 to 30, when Jesus asked the question, what is the most important command? He begins by quoting the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So for Christians, we too believe that there are not three gods, there is one. So God is not like us. God is not and has never been alone because he's three. But there is only one God. So those are the three non-categories we're trying to put around God today. It seems simple enough. Lots of theologians will describe the ideas captured in these three non-categories as a divine dance. The three persons of the Trinity, they say, move around each other and in each other and through each other, forming a unity, but without losing their identity, a bit like a dance. You might have heard the word thrown around perichoresis, perichoresis, maybe, maybe not. That just means we understand it as the divine dance. That's kind of beautiful, right, to think of God as the eternal dancer. The picture's beautiful, but to be honest... You can understand why a non-Christian might think this is crazy. Or that to be a Christian, we've put our logic aside and said that, oh yeah, these two contradicting things, they can be true together. 
You can't say that God is three but also one. And that's the challenge of Christianity and the challenge of the Trinity. The idea of the Trinity is to attempt to put categories around something that resists and breaks categories. We have to make sense of something that defies logic. So here we are, maybe like 15 minutes through this sermon, and what have I accomplished? I've pretty much just shown you how the Bible contradicts itself. I've created what some people call cognitive dissonance. It's that uncomfortable feeling when something that we believe is contradicted by something that we know. We believe that God is three, but we know that he is one. Or we believe that God is one, but we know that he is three. And then you can understand why people become Unitarians and not Trinitarians. One God, not three. Or you can understand why people reject Christianity altogether. So the challenge for every Christian is to live with cognitive dissonance. The culture around us will tell us that we can't live this way. We live in this culture based on the scientific method. We observe, we measure, we test, we hypothesise, we categorise. That's what we do in the world. That's how we've gotten through the world, right? That's how we got to church here safely today. We categorised every car on the road as safe or unsafe, and then we drove accordingly. But if there's a God who breaks every category, at least every category a human can create, it means that inevitably there will be cognitive dissonance, and a lot of it because God is big. And that's our challenge. It might even scare you. If you don't know who God is, like you don't even know what he is, how can you ever follow him? How can you pray to him? How can you call him our father? How can you be his son or daughter? The very things that cause our cognitive dissonance also help us to live with it. So God breaks every category. It's in his nature. And we've only just tried to set up these three categories for him. He's not like us, he's not alone, and he's not three. But he's also broken those categories as well. The core of the good news of the Bible is that at one point, spirit became flesh. We read that earlier in John 1. The one who was categorically not like us became like us. And that flesh, that body was put on the cross and he became alone on the cross and he was abandoned to death and that one that one God who's not three was torn apart what that means for the Trinity I can't really imagine the divine dance that never began but always was stopped so how does this help us isn't this just more cognitive dissonance kind of is but the coming of Jesus in the flesh makes the cognitive dissonance bearable because it eliminates relational dissonance. The questions that drive us crazy, who is God, what is God, what is spirit, all those things become bearable because by coming in the flesh, he became human. And you might never have thought of this before, but he's actually still human right now. You know how you can't feel what's beyond your arm's reach? You know how you can't see from a metre behind you? Neither can Jesus. It's trippy, right? He's God, but he can't do that. When Jesus rose and ascended into heaven, he took humanity there as well. So humanity is now a part of the Trinity and will be forever. And when Jesus ascended, the Spirit descended and came into the followers of Jesus. So the Trinity is part of humanity. 
And specifically, it's part of you if you're a Christian. I'm sure this just raises more questions, but do you kind of feel how we can handle it a bit more now? We can ask all the questions in the world of God. Is there an order to the Trinity? Does Jesus submitting to God mean that God is better than Jesus? Has Jesus always submitted to God even before he became human? All these questions. And we'll probably be asking these questions into eternity. And that's okay. But you can ask these questions now, even though you can't fully understand it. Because it's like you can't fully understand your friends or your dad or your wife. And they do things that perplex you and you don't ever quite grasp them. But it's okay because they're your friend or they're your dad or they're your wife. And the same thing is now true for us in God. We have cognitive dissonance because we can only understand a little bit of him. And that little bit is more than we can make sense of. But it's okay because there's no relational dissonance. We're now in that divine dance of the Trinity that never began but always was. Okay, so... We end this difficult doctrine series with questions. And I'm scared to ask if there are questions because I probably don't know the answer to them. But are there any questions out there? <laughs> oh, no, Steve. No, Steve can't ask questions. In bigger picture, yeah. what should the concept of the Trinity make us think as Christians about God? Yeah, so I kind of shied away from giving like real concrete application in today's sermon. I think partially because... Like, I guess the application from today is that you can explore God and not understand him, and that's okay. Just because we can't understand him doesn't mean we can't know him, we can't be saved by him, we can't be his son. The concrete thing is to, I think, keep exploring God in different ways, so through work, through study, through love, explore him in all these different ways, and be okay that you can't grasp him, because he breaks categories. We can't put him in a box that he doesn't break, but we said he's not alone, but then, oh, he was alone. He's not like us, but he was like us. Like, it just breaks these categories. The concrete thing is explore him and have fun exploring him, which is what we'll do in heaven, but don't be disheartened that you can't grab him.